Acts chapter 11, and as you are turning there, we're going to look at the last uh, paragraph in this section, and we're trying to um, get an understanding of the first century church, churches, as we see now that there are, by um, Acts chapter 10, there's more than one church, there are churches, and in this last paragraph, we know that the church in Antioch had been started by men who came from both Cyprus, so that was an island, now Antioch was, uh, right, Syria, uh, off the coast of uh, Syria there was the island of Cyprus, Cyrene was actually northern Africa, so there was men who were in Antioch preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus Christ, and believers uh, uh, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, formed themselves, assembled themselves together as a church. When we, By the time we reach Acts chapter 13, uh, this is the first church that's going to send out a missionary, the Apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys. Uh, and as we look here, the, the last paragraph in verse 27, after the church has been started and established and Barnabas and Saul have been involved in teaching and assembling the believers together, that's where, by the way, uh, believers were first called Christians in Antioch. And as I mentioned, it was, it was not a, a compliment, right? It was a derogatory term. Oh, there goes those Christians again, little Christs, little people who act like Jesus Christ. They're walking around, you know. And so it was not a, uh, they, the, throughout the Bible, they're called believers, uh, saints, disciples, uh, that's what they're properly called in the Bible. But here we find they were called Christians. And we read here, notice in verse 27, we think about now the relationship between those two churches, the believers and the church at Jerusalem, and now the church in Antioch. Notice verse 27, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and send it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul." I want to bring your attention in verse 29. We have some details as to, again, those believers in Antioch that heard the message from Agabus. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. The Bible says that the disciples, every man according to his ability, notice, determined. They determined. And then notice verse 30, which also they did. As we get an insight, now we've had some insight into the church at Jerusalem and to those who were scattered throughout, but now the church has been formed in Antioch, and we get some insight as to this new church in Antioch, and something that stands out to me here, verse 29 30, is this, everyone determined and did. Now notice those go together, they determined, and then the Bible adds for us in verse 30, which also they did. It's one thing for us to determine to do something. It's another thing for us to actually do it. How many of you would agree with that? I don't know if you all have this, a honey-do list, right? Maybe you have something for your wife to do, and wives, you have something for your husband to do. And uh, I, my wife has given me a list. 
And I've determined to do a lot of things, but I don't actually do them. I want to do them, but I don't actually follow through and do them. And I think that sometimes this often may apply to us as we think about our service for the Lord, or our decisions that we make for the Lord, that we determined and our intentions are good, but we may not necessarily follow through and do them. So I want to preach this morning on this, everyone determined and did, and this is an insight on the church and Antioch. As we look here at our passage, we read about a prophecy that is being declared here. The prophet that particularly spoke, among other prophets, was Agabus. We will read a little bit about Agabus a little later in Acts chapter 21. We don't know a whole lot about this man, but we know he appears here in Acts 11 and then later in Acts chapter 21. But as we go through this passage, I want to ask ourselves here, we are in the 21st century, this is the 1st century, but I want to ask ourselves, here is a new church, and I would consider us a newer church. Uh, when we were, before we came here, we were um, at Capital Baptist Church, and our last year there, they celebrated the 50th anniversary of the church. So that's, you could say, an established church. has been uh, going on for a long time. By the way, that church started with two families, uh, Air Force families that uh, were, I guess, uh, stationed there uh, at the Dover Air Force Base, and then they, they started a church, and here you see a, a church there still thriving uh, over 50 years later. And so we, we may be in the newer church, and we may think to ourselves, well, you know, sometimes, well, uh, we're, 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 we're a small church, we're a new church, so therefore, you know, we, we may think about limiting ourselves, or we may look at maybe what we're doing is not as important as what maybe some big church down there is doing, or some church over here. Uh, but as a, indeed here, this church that is a new church, new believers, new Christians, uh, people who are serving God together. And here is, if you would, this is a, a summary statement. We, we don't have the details of what happened. We just have a summary of what happened in those days. And so I want us to make some points, uh, things that we can learn as a church this morning from our text this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, and the, the, part, the message will be three parts. It'll be, first of all, we notice the prophesying. And then we're going to look at the prompting. How did uh, the church in Antioch respond to this prophecy? And then lastly, we're going to look at their performing. So notice, first of all, uh, the prophesying. As we read in our text in verse 27, the Bible says, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. Now notice here, the Bible shows us specifically prophets. that uh, These are not what you would call preachers or pastors, such as we see early on in the text, such as Barnabas and Saul, who were teaching in the church. Uh, these prophets are referring to those who had a prophecy. They came with a message, and that particular message was a prophecy, a prophecy of something that was going to happen in the future, that unless they brought that message, men would be unaware of. It would be like, uh, if you would, in the sense, Joseph in the Old Testament was a prophet, but in that sense, he only interpreted a dream, but he prophesied that there would be seven years of famine, or seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. And in a sense, that is a, a prophet, someone who prophesies of that which is in the future, and so that's the sense in which we find it. In verse 28, the Bible says there stood up one of them named Agabus. And so, mothers, if you have a, a son, there's a good name to, to pick. I'm just kidding. Uh, well, you may like it. That's fine. Agabus. I, I have never met someone named Agabus. And it's a Bible name. Amen? He's a prophet. So notice he says, 
and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now let's take note here of this prophesying. First of all, I want to notice here the source of this prophecy. Now obviously here, Agabus, among the prophets, is a prophesying here. And so the first thing we notice is the messenger of this prophecy. Now obviously he is the, the one who is delivering this prophecy. He is the one that's preaching. He's delivering this message. And again here, uh, nobody in Antioch is aware of what is going to happen in the future. And so Agabus comes and he delivers a prophecy about something that is going to happen. The Bible t- tells us in verse 27 that it was prophets who came to Jerusalem Verse 28 tells us that one of those prophets who delivered this prophecy was named Agabus. And we we don't know anything about Agabus before this passage. The only other time he is mentioned is in Acts 21. Let's turn there and let's get a, a brief view of what happens later. Obviously, we're going to eventually get there as we study through the book of Acts. But I want you to notice here what we find Agabus doing again, Acts 21. Notice, let's go down to verse 10. The Bible says... And as we tarry there many days. So here we, Luke, is writing this, this book down. And he is with Paul. So we tarry there many days. There came down from Jerusalem a certain prophet named Agabus. There he is again. And notice he is a prophet. Verse 11. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet... And said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle. Now, who owned the girdle? Paul. Okay. And shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they that, uh, of that place besought him, who Paul, not to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because Agabus said, If you go there, you're going to be bound by the Jews, who are going to deliver you to the Romans. And so Luke and the other men who were with Paul says, don't go to Jerusalem then. (laughs) Verse 13, Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. So Agabus here, these are the only two passages that we find, in, and these are both significant moments. And by the way, in Acts 21, what Agabus prophesied happened. This is the time when uh, Paul is going to be bound by the Jews, delivered over to the Gentiles, and we know that's when he's going to stand before King Agrippa, uh, and then he's going to be uh, sent out to Rome. And so we, we'll, we'll see that later, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here. But the, we see here the messenger of this prophecy is a man uh, by the name of Agabus. And by the way, both of those prophecies came true. Both of those. And uh, the reason why I say that is because often when we think today, and we may think of a prophet as far as someone who uh, foretells, right, who tells of something before it happens, and in a sense, as we're preaching on people to be saved because judgment is coming, uh, in that sense we are all prophets as we are speaking of the gospel, or we are forth-telling, we are just speaking the truth, uh, that is also the prophet here. But this particular prophesying is not, if you would, a 
Agabus preaching on a verse in the Bible or preaching the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, the Spirit of God has revealed something to Agabus, and Agabus, among other prophets, is going to prophesy that a dearth is coming. Now, the reason why I say that is because the Jews would be acquainted at this time uh, with prophets. They knew there's, uh, there would always be prophets around that would prophesy, oh, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And by the way, we still have those today. People who like to prophesy things or like to read your palm or like to uh, say, well, this is going to be in your future. If you notice, most of those things are general. You know, uh, you're going to lose a friend. You're going to find a friend. In other words, this is applicable basically to everybody. And that's how how people do it today. Uh, But this is very specific. And Deuteronomy 18.22 says that when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not... That means what he prophesied. If that doesn't happen, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet that hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. In other words, during that time in the culture, there were many prophets, many many people prophesied of things, but how did we discern whether a prophet was genuine or not? Well, when they said something and it happened, that's of the Lord. When they prophesied about something and it didn't happen, then that is not of the Lord. And so obviously, because the believers here in Antioch listen to Agabus, that tells us that he is an established prophet that speaks from the Lord. We know that later in Acts 21, what he's going to prophesy is also going to happen. And so therefore, this uh, messenger is a reliable prophet. Right? He's not some random person speaking his own mind uh, or making his own prediction. The Bible tells us here, now we not only see the messenger of this prophecy, but we also see the mover of this prophecy. The Bible says, as he speaks, verse 28, And there stood up one named Agabus, and uh, uh, signified by the Spirit. So this prophecy was true. Why? Because it came from the Spirit himself. Notice, He signified it by the Spirit. Who was the mover of this prophecy? It was not Agabus. It was the Spirit of God. Why? Because it is only when the Spirit speaks that Agabus speaks. He signified. He spoke by the Spirit. And so this, by the way, this this was not a weather forecast style message. What's the weather forecast? Well, we know how that works. Today... There's a 50% chance uh, that it's going to rain. I wish I had that type of job. You know what I mean? You're wrong every single time, and you still keep your job. And by the way, 50%, what does that even mean? You're right either way. (laughs) 50%, it'll rain. Oh, it didn't rain. We were right. It rained. We were right. (laughs) And it's just like, that's not what we're talking about here. All right? Uh, We're talking here about a dearth, and so this was not a... 50% prediction of of sun or rain. This message was delivered with certainty because the Spirit was the primary mover of this prophecy. Now, this was a time when they did not live with the completed scriptures of both the Old and the New Testament. They had the Old Testament, but they didn't have the the New Testament. And so we know that prophecy, according to 1 Corinthians, will cease, and they're going to fail, and so they're not intended to be a perpetual thing. And so today, by the way, we don't have any prophets saying, hey, there's a dearth coming, or this. Now, God speaks to our hearts. Understand me. 
But as a church, we don't follow some new movement or some prophet that comes on the scene. And by the way, many sects in the world come about because somebody is claiming to be a prophet. To have some special revelation that nobody knows, and they need to follow him. Let me just say, anybody that's going to preach is going to point the rightful type of preacher or prophet is going to point people to Jesus Christ. Not to themselves. They're not going to make disciples after them. They're going to make uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. We know Second Peter 2.21 that the prophecy in the Old Testament came not in old time by the will of men, but men, men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So this prophecy, we know the messenger is Agabus, but the mover of this prophecy is the Holy Ghost. And the Bible tells us here, just so we know, what kind of prophecy this is. But we also notice not only the messenger of this prophecy and the mover of this prophecy, but we see the message of this prophecy. So what is, what, what is Agabus saying? And he signified by the Spirit, verse 28, that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world. So a dearth is simply a famine. Uh, when you think about a dearth, uh, this, um, uh, the word dearth basically means a scarcity of food. And so, uh, the, the, the word great dearth, so great, indicates that the scarcity of food or the famine that is about to come would be very severe. And so it's not just uh, we're, we're going to have less this year than we had last year. It's going to be a severe dearth of food. Uh, now, a dearth, what, what is a dearth and what, should ha- what happens in a dearth? You see, a dearth is basically a failure of crops producing as they usually do from season to season. Now, every year for the farmers, and any farmer understands, every year it varies, right? Uh, they count things by bushels, and, and often you get more bushels one year than another. And so that is a, that is a, they're all accustomed to that. But basically a dearth is a failure of crops producing as they usually do from season to season. And when there is a dearth, it is often the poor who are the most affected. In other words, because in this economy, which was still true, that often when it came time for harvest, it was based on the the Jewish law that uh, they would harvest the corn and harvest the wheat, but they would always leave some for the poor. Portions of their field would be left to the poor. And so guess what? Uh, That would be, uh, if you would, a way to take care of those who were more in need. And that was purposely done to do that. Uh, And guess what? When a dearth comes, there's less crops, sometimes no crops. And so who are the first to be affected? Well, the poor, they already have nothing. But now they really have nothing. And so this would be a, 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 a severe message here, a severe dearth. So we see here the... The source of this prophecy, again, Agabus preached it, but he preached it because the Holy Ghost moved him to preach, gave him that message. But why? Because a dearth is coming. So we see the source of this prophecy, but also we see the specifics of this prophecy. Notice the Bible says in verse 28, there should be a great dearth throughout all the world. So this dearth, I understand, would affect the entire Roman Empire of that day. That's what the world means there. The whole Roman Empire. One thing was for certain, believers around the known Roman Empire would suffer as a result of the earth. Now, the reason why I say this is this. Agabus is preaching where? In Antioch. 
where they're going to send uh, the funds that they raised to? Jerusalem. Wait a minute. Agabus said it's going to be throughout the whole world. So the believers in Antioch are also going to go through the dearth. But yet they're going to send for those that need in Jerusalem, even though they know themselves, they themselves are going to go through the dearth. So, this prophecy would be throughout the whole world. Everybody is going to be affected by it. But do you see here the, the mentality of the Christians of that day? It's not about what I can do for myself. It's about what I can do for somebody else. In other words, there was no self-centeredness. In other words, the, the believers there were not thinking, Oh, the dearth is coming. Let's hoard everything. Let's pack our houses. They said, how can we be blessing to those in Jerusalem? That that was the mindset of the Christians in Antioch. By the way, there's a new church, new Christians. That's what, how they think. So we see here the, the source of this prophecy, the specifics of this prophecy. But we also see the season of this prophecy. The Bible says that this dearth, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, this prophecy would be fulfilled during the time of Claudius Caesar. Claudius Caesar reigned from 41 to 54 AD. Um, there are actually two uh, prominent historians during that time, two Roman historians. One of them is Tacitus and Suetonus. These two, two historians lived during that period, and they both reported that during that time, during the reign of Claudius, there was indeed a dearth. Now, history shows us that this dearth began in the second year of his reign and continued until the fourth year of his reign. Uh, you see, there are, there are a number of Roman historians who make this, the mention of this dearth. Even Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, mentions this dearth. Now, why do I spend time making this point? Well, I, I say those things for this reason. Because it shows us the reliability of the Bible. Do you know the... Scores of people who have read things in the Bible and who've tried to go to the land or to, to try to delve into history to find if these things were indeed true. And not one of them can find, well, the Bible says that and it didn't happen. No, it did. You know what that tells us? That the Bible is reliable and that the Bible is true. And so it once again puts to silence the criticism of the skeptics. Oh, let's look and find out. Let's try to see if we get discount or disprove the Bible. And let me just say, you can try, and you can't, and you won't. And by the way, many people who have endeavored to go that road to try to disprove the Bible have become believers. They found the evidence of all those things to be overwhelming, that they could be skeptics no longer. I spend time making this point because also it proves to us that the Spirit reveals that which man does not know. You see, that's what a prophecy is. A prophecy is a communication to man of what man cannot know for himself, that he cannot find out for himself. And who does that? The Spirit of God does that. But also, thirdly, I make this point because it demonstrates that these prophets were worthy of an audience. You see, when Agabus shows, shows along, they, 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 the believers are going to send to the need of the, the believers in Jerusalem, and they believed Agabus... And it demonstrates to us that he was worthy of an audience. In other words, he was not a kook. Right? He was not a weirdo. 
Uh, people uh, respected uh, what he said because they knew that his message was from the Spirit of God. So we see here the, the prophesying, but we also see, secondly, the prompting. So a dearth is coming. We don't know exactly when it's not mentioned here or how long it's going to be. But notice the response, the organic response of the church in verse 29. Then, what's the then follow? The dearth coming, the message, the prophesying, this is coming. Then, as a response, notice the Bible says, the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. And so I want you to see here, they heard something and it prompted them to do something. You know, when God speaks... It is typically, he doesn't speak to us for us just to gain knowledge. There's a response that should come about when God speaks to us. And here, the response is laid out in verse 29. And so I want us to go through uh, this response. Notice, first of all, under the prompting, we see they, the Bible says they were dedicated as disciples. Notice the Bible says, then the disciples... Now, the reason why I say that is the Bible doesn't always call a group of believers disciples. But sometimes the Bible says disciples. Sometimes it says believers. Sometimes it says the saints. But evidently, the Holy Spirit of God, who, pen, uh, who inspired Luke to pen these words down, says, all right, here is an accurate description of the believers who were in, who were in Antioch. Uh, they, they, they have to be called disciples. Now, the further point that we make here is that the Bible says, notice, then the disciples, what's the next two words? Every man. So, do you know what that tells us? The disciples, every man? It tells us that every man, and by the way here, this is not just men, masculine men, this is every man, it's all, all the, all, every single person from children to women to the men in the church, all of them were disciples. Now, the word disciple means pupil learner. Right? The idea of a disciple too has the idea is that you are, you are disciplined. That goes with the word disciple. So understand, these believers that were there would be accurately called disciples. And not only the believers there, but every man. And so what we conclude here is that every man was a disciple. You see, and here's this important here. Uh, the Bible, we read throughout the book of Acts, and the Bible says they were of one accord. It repeats that throughout the book of Acts. The believers of Jerusalem, they were of one accord. We know that Paul instructs the churches to be of one mind, of one heart, uh, to be of one accord. And so we find that all throughout the New Testament. Uh, but here, every disciple, and we think about you know what brings... Unity in the church. What brings oneness in the church? What brings about one spirit in the church? Uh, what brings about that? Well, let me make a statement and then explain it. Unity is not found in a desire to get along. Let me say that. Unity is not found in a desire to get along. Unity is found in a common dedication to Jesus Christ. So here, here, here's, here's the, the, what, what people say. So, well, let's, let's, just kinda, let's all just get along. 
No matter our differences, no matter what we do or how we think, let's just get along and you know, tolerate each other and just, let's just be unified. No, that's not the way it works. Unity is found in Jesus Christ. So the believers in Antioch were called disciples, the disciples, every man. Now the word disciple indicates to us that they were all dedicated to us, so they all have this perspective. Let's, I, I'm go, I personally, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Hey, are you going to follow? You're following Jesus Christ? Oh, great. Let's follow Jesus Christ together. You see, unity is not, hey, conflict here. You, you want to get along? I think we need to, you know, the Bible says we need to be unified. No, let's follow Jesus Christ. And as we follow Jesus Christ, then we get along. Why? Because unity is found in the person of Jesus Christ. See, how, how can you have a bunch of different people with different personalities all move together in the same direction in Christ. Being disciples. Every man. You know, sometimes you, uh, you may be in a church and, and all you spend your time doing is, is just putting out fires. Conflict over here, conflict over there. And it seems that everybody is just bothered with everybody. And if we just focus on all following the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be unity in the church. Unity is a byproduct. We don't seek for unity. We don't chase after unity. We chase after Jesus Christ, and He brings unity. So, we see that they were dedicated as disciples. And so again, unity is not found in a desire to get along. It is found in a common dedication to Jesus Christ. So we see they were dedicated as disciples, but then, so that, that's, that, you see, that's kind of the found foundation before we go any further. Then the disciples, notice, Every man according to his ability. So that we see here, they were dedicated as disciples, but then they were different in their ability. That's what the Bible tells us. Every man according to his ability. Now, they determine they're going to send relief. Now, what does that mean? Whether it is a monetary thing or maybe a bag of corn or whatever it is, but they send relief. So it could be in various forms and in various ways, but that's the relief that is found. Now, we see here, then, every man according to his ability. So they gave according to what they had. One preacher put it this way. He says, it is what you have left more than what you gave that reveals your heart and your charity. In other words... When we think about according to the ability, it's, it, that's, that's a, a, a percentage. In other words, if, if you take two persons in the church and one person has $1,000 and the other person over here has $10, the person has $1,000 may, may give $200 and the person over here that has 10 may give 10 cents. That is according to their ability. In other words, God... And nowhere in His Word is anybody praised for the amount that they gave. But they are praised for giving according to their ability. Now here's what happened. The person that had the ability to give a lot should not despise those that can't give as much. But the people that can't give a lot should not despise those that can give much. And by the way, both of those happen. Because you hear people that can't give a lot say, well, if only I had that person, if only I had their situation, then I could do this. No, how about you do what you can? Don't worry about what they do. And see, why? See, that, that's, that's, that's why I said the first point here is the foundation. See, because if we're all following the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what the person does over here. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to do what I can do. Even if it may seem insignificant, it is never insignificant in the eyes of the Lord. 
So they were dedicated as disciples. They were, uh, uh, they were different in their ability, or there was a difference in their ability, but also we see that they were determined to meet the need together. The Bible says, um, every man according to his disciples. So notice, this is the order. The disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief. Uh, here, the word determined here, notice it's, it's really a two-pronged uh, approach because they're doing what they're doing based on the prophecy of Agabus. In other words, the prophecy would happen later. In other words, let me, they were not in the dearth at that time. Why? Because if they were in the dearth, they don't need somebody to announce it. They know they're in it. So when the prophecy is announced... Their response is what type of response when they determine it's a faith response. So they're going to send for the relief even though the dearth is not upon them yet. Now it's coming, but their response is a faith response. But the Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now that's what the Bible says. So when we think about it, when we determine, we make a decision sometimes, well, that just... Does it make sense? Am I supposed to just go on the testimony of Agabus? By faith, I will. So we see here, the word determined here, it was done in faith, but it was also done in charity. And the reason why those two are, are found here is because they're going to go through the dearth as well. But yet, they're more concerned for the need of the believers in Jerusalem than they are for their own needs. Uh, and by the way, this is with them having the perspective that they're fully aware. Remember, that church in Antioch was started because of the persecution in Jerusalem. So in Antioch, they're thinking, you know, they, 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 have, it, they have it worse than us. So we're going to send to them because we have benefited in some sense because of their persecution and many of the believers there uh, have lost their homes and lost their jobs because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they determined to meet the need together, and that was done in both faith and charity. And by the way, the Bible makes it clear that as Christians, if we have not charity, we just like a tinkling cymbal. We may make a lot of sound, but we're, we're not worth a whole lot in the work of God if charity is not involved. So they determined to meet the needs of others, uh, to, 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 to meet the need together, but also lastly, they had received a blessing by the suffering of others. Now notice, the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Okay, now, my last point here comes from, who are they sending the gift to? You see, they, in Antioch, had received a blessing at the expense of who? The believers in Judea. Uh, the Bible, if you uh, go back, if you remember, turn with me back to Acts chapter 8. In uh, Acts chapter 8, notice now we know Acts chapter 7, right? Peter preaches the, before the Sanhedrin council. They uh, drive him out of the city. Um, and they stone him. Uh, Stephen uh, dies. And notice we read in verse 1, Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they 
were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. So notice here, the believers that were at Jerusalem were scattered abroad throughout the regions. Notice verse 4 of chapter 8. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. We just read in Acts chapter 11 uh, that um, uh, those that came, uh, notice in verse uh, Acts eleven nineteen. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. So we just read that, right? Acts 8, 1. Those same people that were scattered uh, because of the persecution of Stephen, the, his stoning, traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and Antioch. So there's Antioch preaching the word to none but to the Jews only. So understand, when Agabus comes now and he says, there's a famine coming. The famine is going to be throughout the world. They know that they're going to be affected by the famine. But the first thing they think about is, wait a minute. The believers in Judea have been dealing with persecution. They've been, they've been scattered. And, and look, we have been the recipients of, of them because they were preaching the gospel. And we have received the Lord Jesus Christ. The word was preached unto us. And so now we know that a famine is coming. And so there's something in them that, uh, that was aroused that they said, we need to take care of the physical needs by those uh, uh, through whom uh, we've been blessed spiritually. Do you see what they're saying here? The benefit they received because of the persecution was far greater value to them than the provision and the money they could send to them. Back to them as a response of the things that they had. You see, those who had first preached in Antioch had been scattered because they were persecuted and so now those who had been sent, remember even here in this passage, remember who did the, believer, who did the church in uh, Jerusalem send over to help Antioch? Barnabas. The church in Jerusalem did that. And so you see Antioch has been the recipient of the persecution, but also the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to help them and to teach them. And so they've received what? They haven't received any money. They haven't received any temporal thing. But they've received the word of God. They've been taught. They've been preached the gospel to. And so now they're giving back. Notice in a physical sense. For the provision of the physical needs of those in Jerusalem. Why? Because to them what they've received is of much greater value than the things that they've given. And so lastly we see the performing. So we see here the prophesying. We see the prompting. And lastly we see the performing. Notice verse 30. The Bible adds that. The Bible doesn't tell us, hey, what they determined to do. The Bible follows up and tells us, verse 30, which also they did. Now, why would God tell us this right here? Because sometimes we may determine to do certain things, but we don't do them. You see, God tells us, now these believers, we understand here who they are, why they did what they did, but here's the result. They actually did it. They followed through with what they determined to do. They, they did what they said they would do. So which also they did. And sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. It's interesting. I, I see in my mind Jerusalem when they heard of the believers in Antioch. Well, north, north, south. So in Jerusalem in the south. They sent up Barnabas. And so he travels Antioch. And he remains there in Antioch. Remember he, he got Saul of Tarsus. And he brought him. 
uh, to help teach in the church of Antioch. And so they're, they're, the, the church is thriving. Wonderful things are happening. People are being saved. People are growing. The church is assembled. Church has been constantly. This is a wonderful thing happening. And so then Agabus comes along and says, hey, there's going to be a great dearth. And so the only thing that the church can think about is, wait a minute, they've been a blessing to us. So we can, in a sense, be a blessing to them. This is, this is not a repayment. You understand? It's not a repayment. The believers in, in uh, Jerusalem are already saved. The believers in Antioch have been saved and have grown as a result of the suffering of those in Jerusalem. And so now they're, they're giving a small thing because they know that a need is coming. They do it because of their faith and because of their charity. And so what do we learn here? You know, what we do, obviously, when we think about our response, everyone determined and did, uh, what we do, understand, well, how, 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 do we, how are we found as a church? How can we move together for the Lord? By being disciples. By all following the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, by all of us doing according to our ability. Not doing what somebody else can do, but doing according to our ability... And then, determined to move together, no matter what each of our ability is. And really, what, 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 why are we doing this? Because the things that we have in God are much greater than anything we can give in this world. What we have in God is of much greater value than anything we can give in this world. And so when that is the perspective then we must do what we determined to do. And so, uh, may the Lord help us uh, to follow through. When God's put something on our hearts, let's do that. Determined to do it, and then do it.